Colleagues, welcome to Evidence and Argument, a podcast for SLPs, audiologists, and the scientists who support them. This is a podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking, hate beating around the bush. This is our second episode called Is the Evidence Gap in Our Field Graduate Programs Fault? All right. So, our last episode, we talked about whether or not anybody knew shit. And so the next obvious question is, well, if they don't know shit, whose fault is it? Which is why I really love this next question. And when we thought of this question originally, I thought this made a lot of sense. But the next question, or maybe the preceding question should be, we might not all agree that there even is an evidence gap in our field. And this position is certainly up for discussion. And then I thought maybe we have another question to ask before that, which is, what is evidence? Do we all agree on what evidence is? And Meredith, you are the founder of the Informed SLP, where a main goal is to inform SLPs with evidence, to arm them with evidence. How would you define evidence? So evidence is basically just like a shorthand way of saying research. And when we're talking about evidence, we generally mean the research that's published in journal articles. And that's the only place, you know, you're going to be able to make direct contact with the version of it that's been peer-reviewed. Sometimes when we use the word evidence as kind of like a shorthand to refer specifically to research, people will bring up the issue of, oh, what about clinical evidence? What about like, you know, evidence that you might draw from like your client's data files and stuff like that? And all of that stuff is obviously important evidence. But usually when people just say the word evidence, they tend to refer to research. And that's what I usually mean when I say the word evidence. And that's also, you know, when people are like advertising products in our field and stuff, they'll say things like, oh, this tool is evidence-based. And they're usually meaning to, you know, get people thinking that it's based on research and peer-reviewed research specifically. So while that might be the case, evidence-based sits on three pillars though. So I guess I'm a Mm -hmm. little bit curious about why you think the shift from the patient's perspective, which is a pillar, the Mm -hmm. clinician's experience, which is a pillar, and the scientific evidence, why is there this distinction that evidence falls primarily more than, you know, 70% on science. Why do, where do you think that came from? Well, I think there's kind of like two different things. Like there, there's, what do we mean by the word so that when we use the word, we're all on the same page? And then what do we want for clinical practice? To me, those are to- two totally different things, right? So like when I say, when I refer to evidence, I mean the research, I literally just mean that's the way I use the word. So when I use that word, that's what I'm referring to. And that's what most people in our field generally are referring to. But it in no way suggests that problem solving for individual clients should, you know, be like 70% based on the research at all times, or, you know, like, you know, which should be weighted more heavily than others. And 
clinicians have asked me that before, you know, like, so which part of, you know, the evidence triangle do you think should be weighted more heavily? And it's like, well, it depends entirely on the situation. It depends on if there's good evidence available for you to, you know, be leaning on, or if there's hardly anything available, it depends on what's going on with like the individual client situation. That makes a lot of sense that evidence varies. And obviously, if you are treating a population for which there are no research studies, a lot of the weight is going to be on patient experience and your clinical experience. And hopefully they're grounded in some theories that allow you to make reasonable judgments. Now, the question that precedes the original question is, do you think we all agree that there is an evidence gap in communication sciences and disorders? And you can choose any and all of the evidences that we defined. Yeah. For me, it's almost kind of a funny question to to ask. I'm glad you're asking it, but there's a lot of research to suggest that clinicians often don't know what our field's science says very deeply. And obviously, there's going to be variability. Some clinicians know it really well. Some clinicians know it hardly at all. And it varies per topic. You know what I mean? Like it varies per, are we talking about speech sound disorders? Are we talking about autism? Are we talking about dysphagia? But there's actually, I can bring the citations and we can put it in our show notes (laughs) to suggest that there is a huge disconnect between practicing clinicians' knowledge base and the research. And the thing that can maybe give some sort of peace of mind is this isn't an SLP thing. Like there's research showing that in PT and OT and education and nursing and medicine, you know, and so it's not that we're uniquely messing it up. Um, There's an evidence gap in most fields. And it's actually why certain areas of studies for scientists exist, like implementation science. So people who are implementation scientists what they study is the uptake of research evidence into daily life, right? So there's an entire field of study looking at the evidence gap. So for me, for somebody to say something like, I don't think there's an evidence gap, it's like, well, have you looked? (laughs) It might not be as bad in some areas, and you might have situations that you're observing where there's no evidence gap. So the interesting thing about implementation science is that there are some studies uh, that suggest that it takes about 17 years for evidence that people pretty well agree on in terms of there have been several studies generally telling us the same thing to actually be be implemented, at least in clinical practice. So if we take something like hand washing, everybody pretty much agrees it's a good idea to wash your hands, to keep them clean, especially if you're dealing with sick people. But implementation of actually washing your hands just before you go into every patient's room and just after you leave is a different story. And so that's, as you said, what implementation science is. It's getting humans to herd, right? We talk about herding cats, but really it's herding humans a lot of times. So we know what we should do and we don't always do it. Now, that's something as seemingly simple and um, generally understood and accepted as washing your hands. So here's my suggestion for why I wonder whether or not the evidence gap in CSD is different from other fields, like let's say nursing or something like that. We don't have research that's been going back quite as long as these other fields have. 
That's one. And the other thing is we don't have as many people studying it as medicine does, right? So they have so many divisions of medicine. It's not just you're a doctor, so you deliver babies and cut out eyeballs. I don't even know if people cut out eyeballs, but if they did, I assume a physician would do it. And I assume that that person would not also be delivering babies, right? Unless you're like on Gilligan's Isle or something. And so if that's the case, they have all of these sub-disciplines that have been so extensively studied, right? We're newer. So my thought is that the evidence in our field, based on research I've done, at least in swallowing, is do you understand how the mechanism works? Not what therapy would you use? To me, understanding the mechanism is far preceding how would you assess it, which then far precedes which treatment should you use? So I'm sometimes Mm -hmm. dismayed that in CSD, our question in terms of what our gap is, is which therapies work? When you really look at the question, some people don't even under, don't even agree on how the mechanism works. So of course, mm-hmm. what therapy might work is so far down the line. On the other hand, in general, there's a whole lot more agreement on how a system works in just the most basic function. Like let's say, say how does walking work? PTs can probably along the line have a general description of how walking works. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of speech pathologists based on our research don't necessarily agree on how a swallow works. So while there is a gap, the question is, what is the gap on? And in my opinion, our gap is on some very preliminary ideas and not perhaps on more advanced concepts. Yeah, I see that for sure. And like in other areas of our field, like, you know, language development or so, you know, there's definitely a lot that's known theoretically that most clinicians don't know, but... I, th- I think that understanding physiology for something like swallowing is going to be much more crucial than like when you take it over to some of the like cognitive processes, like, you know, language development and stuff like that. Like I can almost see the jump to how do we treat it being a smidge more appropriate because we don't have a good enough understanding of even like the order in which, you know, various grammatical and morphological things come in line with, you know, kids between the ages of like six and nine and what you do when they're disordered and stuff to use the theory even alone to help inform practice in that area. And what you've done is just told me that we are the physician who both takes out eyeballs and delivers babies because I don't know what you just said. And we have the same degree. So bring on your kids with their MLU problems because I'm going to put an epiglottis in them. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Right. Right. Like you can can show how hard it is by asking either of us. Like if you were to ask me how swallowing worked, you would probably die at how terrible my answer would be. And same thing with you. If I was like, name me three evidence-based, you know, techniques for treating speech sound disorders, like some of our strongest ones, you'd be like, "Mm." can you just remind me what a speech sound disorder is? Is that the Arctic one or is that the link? Which one? No, I'm just picking. I'm not that bad, but let's just assume I am. <laughs> yeah, so that makes it hard for clinicians. That makes it hard for clinicians. Like, my gosh. It's hard for clinicians. It's hard for scientists because we don't speak the same language a lot of times and we have the same degree, right? So we can't even vet each other within our expertise of understanding how research works. Yeah. So now I guess the question that we can finally answer is the one that we said this podcast was based on, which is essentially, is the evidence gap in our field the fault of graduate programs? Um, So we know we have a general sense of what evidence is. We have a general sense of what we think the gap is. Whose fault is it in the event that we both agree that there is, in fact, a gap? Who 
whose fault is it in your opinion, Meredith? Well, skipping straight to the answer, <laughs> my my pr- opinion and prediction is that it's a combination of a lot of different factors that come from both within our field that we have some control over and things that come from outside of our field. And again, this is actually based on implementation science research and, you know, kind of like knowing where these barriers are coming from. But there's a lot of things that even if we were to fix it internally in our field and get clinicians and scientists communicating more, sharing with each other in efficient ways so that we really are like brain dumping into each other all the time, you know, and get that set up real nicely, there's still going to be issues with insurers. There's still going to be interest issues with school districts and the hospitals that we work at and all that stuff. So it's not any one group's fault per se, but I think anyone that could be identified within our field has some amount of both blame to hold in the situation where there's, you know, room for improvement. And also they need to know that they don't need to feel like it's all on them. I do think that there's a little bit of a history in our field of the blame for not knowing our field's research being put on clinician's shoulders, where it's basically like, it's your fault, you don't know it, like, figure it out, you know what I mean? But clinicians have so many barriers in place. And everyone else who's kind of in our field, so talking about like leadership, so national organizations, state organizations, talking about university faculty, clinical supervisors, scientists in our field, business owners in our field who are selling CEU courses to people and products and stuff. Like everybody in our field has a role to play and kind of has a unique responsibility in the situation. And you can blame the clinicians, but it's the graduate programs that made them clinicians. So, uh, you know, that's the interesting (laughs) part. So while you could blame a clinician who's been, I always like to say, do you have 20 years of experience or do you have year one repeated 19 times? And there are mm-hmm. some clinicians who have year one repeated 19 times and they didn't grow upon graduation and they just didn't take the courses that would really push them and challenge them. But even to mm-hmm. be a clinician at ground one, maybe they needed that scaffolding to say, this is how a clinician functions. We can't give you all the answers, mm-hmm. but it is your job as a clinician to be an active learner. And maybe that's what graduate programs can do. They can teach you they can't teach you what to see but they can teach you where to look right it's their Mm -hmm. job to say this is how you grow not to just say you are finished and you are done and maybe that's their role yeah for sure so graduate programs i think we know for sure that they have some sort of role in that and we'll kind of you know go through and discuss you know what that could possibly be but another reason i think this is a really interesting question is because i see clinicians blame their graduate programs all the time where if they don't know something within the first five years of clinical practice they're like well my graduate program didn't teach me that you know my my professors have screwed up <laughs> and so i think there's both some like you know over exaggeration of the role graduate programs play as well as opportunities for growth and identifying what maybe they could do differently. And may I also suggest that you and I have been on both sides. Uh-huh. Wait, we've yeah. been on all three sides. We've been a student, we've been in the clinical realm, and we've been a professor. And yeah. so we perhaps have a unique view of where fault lies and where responsibility mm-hmm. also lies, right? We can talk more about that because I actually do have a note for the future about what incentivizes a professor, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this idea that it's teaching is not the case. (laughs) I would also like to suggest the following, which is I feel like graduate students are in line with teenagers when you're raising kids, right? So they are 
not ready to go. Like you could, they could live on the street at age 16. It's just not going to be as good as if they make it out there at age 20. But they're also not babies, right? So they've been, they've had Mm -hmm. the college experience. So I think that you can't expect a teenager to be who that person is as if they showed up as a teenager. They've had X number of years before. So what should we be saying about undergrad programs? And obviously, undergrad programs are supposed to be teaching the foundations in terms of what's normal. And my opinion is this. There are so many more studies generally in our field about what's normal that they should have Mm -hmm. learned evidence about understanding the basic mechanisms and how we came to know them based on the literature, not pure textbook regurgitation, which is, well, it says here that you should have your S sound by this age. Well, how did we come to know that? Well, these studies conducted this design and together collectively, they have found XYZ. Now, here are the limitations to that, that you may experience in the wide range of what normal will be when you go out in the school system. To me, that's how Mm -hmm. normal should have been taught as opposed to we got an epiglottis and we got a this and we got a that. Just know it because someone's not going to have it one day and you got to understand that. So to me, the responsibility really starts with undergrad to incorporate and you have them for the same amount of time, typically about two years, last two years of undergrad to be able to instill this idea of even though we're doing foundational principles, they too came about because of the literature. What do you think about that? And, And of course, incorporating critical thinking in that whole process. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. And 100% the, you know, issue of not just memorizing where in the brain does this happen? Where in the brain does that happen? You know, what it, but understanding the science behind how we got there and the science behind a lot of the stuff in our field is really interesting, like really interesting from like a storytelling perspective, too. Um, I taught the neuroscience undergrad course at the university, university I was at last at Rockhurst University in Kansas City. I did it a lot from like a storytelling perspective in terms of not just like, this is what the cerebellum does. This is what it looks like. This is what a Purkinje cell is. Like that put me to... Whose voice are you doing whenever you do that? You're always like, who is this person in your life that you're imitating? (laughs) Who is that person? Who is the uninformed SLP who you're learning from? (laughs) But, you know, when it comes from the story of the science, I think that it makes it a lot more engaging and memorable. And that's just basic like storytelling and teaching stuff, right? But you got to know the story. So while you're Mm -hmm. saying that, it makes me think of a course that I put on called Normal Swallowing 101. And it's for clinicians who've been practicing. And you would Mm -hmm. think we wouldn't need a course called Normal Swallowing 101 Clinical Workshop, but actually we did. And I would talk about the things they think they know based on the story of how they've come to think it. So maybe something as simple as, at what point should the swallow initiate? at what depth the food is, basically, should the swallow initiate? And everybody would be like, by the time the bolus is here. It's like, why do you think that? We don't know. Well, let me tell you why you think that. It's because in 19 so-and-so, somebody said this. Then these studies came out and they had an argument. And then this study came out and this study came out. So now you are just picking this one because the textbook said it when really there were 10 studies saying There's all kinds of answers to this question. And then Mm -hmm. the story is so much more interesting to introduce the idea that the study, that the literature is mixed and that's okay. I know you want to have one answer. That's why we love textbooks because somebody has Mm -hmm. baby birded it into our heads. Listen to episode one if you don't know what I mean by that. (laughs) But 
if someone has baby birded it into your head, it's so cool to say the swallow should start when the bolus hits this particular structure. But really understanding the nuances to me, that's far more interesting. But as you said, encasing it in a story is important. But the people who are often teaching the courses because we have so many programs don't always know the history. They often get a textbook and a syllabus Mm -hmm. that's been passed down to them. They're hired to teach this course. And the whole idea of the history of how we got here is not known to them. Not that they wouldn't be interested if they known, but how would they learn that? Yeah, 100%. There's there's a lot of pressure put on faculty to know the broad scope of SLPs just in the same way that it is for SLPs. And it's hard for them too. Yeah. I was fortunate enough that I never got a class dumped on me that I really wasn't prepared for, but it could have very easily happened. All it would have taken is one little shift in another faculty member at the university. And I could have landed with like teaching fluency on my lap and been like, okay, I better read a couple textbooks over the summer before I, you know, pick up this class for the students, you know? Like, I actually almost got phonetics dumped on me. I'm like, <laughs> that's not cool. That's like asking me to watch mm-hmm. your your pet gecko for a month. It's not coming back alive, dudes. Like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just wanted to ask you one more question about what you think critical thinking is. It's something that you hear all the time. It's like evidence-based. You know, everybody thinks they know what it is. But really, how do you think you teach critical thinking in undergrad and then again in grad school? Like it to me, the thread of what it means should be the same across the domains. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think that I have the expertise to really answer that question because I'm not so sure that in my time spent as a professor, I'm not so sure I mastered that. I'm obsessed with critical thinking because I don't like it when... I get things right too quickly. I, I'm always like, it can't be that easy. There's got to be something mm-hmm. else. And I'll I'll keep digging and digging until I find the edges of my knowledge. And people have to be patient with me learning because I'm usually asking them a gazillion questions. And because mm-hmm. that's the kind of learner I am, that's the kind of learning I unfortunately force on my students, which is my, why my teacher evals are amazing. Uh, <laughs> because they'll answer a question. I'll go, why do you think you know that? And you can't just accidentally get the right answer with me. You have to explain why you think you know that. And it has to be a sound rationale for why you think you know that, or it's not. But sometimes I have to express to them, sometimes you learn the right answer because you got it wrong, not because Mm -hmm. you got it right. Part of learning is the trial and error. It's the getting things wrong. And so I try to incorporate that into my classroom, like set up these moments where sometimes the answer is I don't have enough information. And I'll even set up a scenario where I'll go, do you have enough information to answer that question? That's a tough question to answer because they want to answer you because their job as a student has always been answer my questions. And it's hard to get them to realize to say to a professor, ma'am or sir, you have not provided me sufficient evidence to answer that question. Right. I love, I love that. And, and, you know, there's so few places in life where the process of going through something like that and asking why and asking, how do you know this and all that type of stuff just isn't supported or encouraged. You know what I mean? How many people get to do that in their job other than scientists, right? (laughs) And so it, it makes sense that our students wouldn't have experience with it because of how we know, you know, our education system is currently set up in a lot of ways, but also because their parents might not model it for them either if their parents aren't used to doing things like that in their daily life, simply because of like the type of work they do and whether or not it's something that is in some ways like a luxury they're afforded 
to, you know, take the time to deeply think on things rather than be a producer of like tasks and stuff, you know? Well, what I do is I have a practical solution that I like to tell students, clinicians, scientists, scientists are not, are not exempt from this. And I wish they were, but Mm -hmm. how many times have you been to a scientific meeting? Everybody knows that the person, somebody needs to go to that microphone and ask this question because everyone's moaning and groaning and texting each other about how on earth did they come to that conclusion? And nobody (laughs) has the courage to say, um, can you, I, I just, your methods could not have possibly answered that research question. That's the mm-hmm. conversation. We need to be holding each other accountable. But now it's become so nice and bland that you're actually looked down yeah. upon for that. But I always say everybody's marching orders is that we have to give everybody a license to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. You have a license, your duty to ask why and how until something makes sense. It is your job to take ownership of your learning. To me, that's what critical thinking is. If you know the answer and you don't know why, it is your duty to ask why until they can answer that. So you have every right to be skeptical if you're in a learning environment. And mm-hmm. when I when I sort of set the stage that way, critical thinking can sometimes happen, which in my opinion, forces the students to say, well, what's the evidence, professor so-and-so? So the professors then know they can't just go, whether they're undergrad or grad, say, establish that so-and-so. Somebody should raise their hand and say, can you help me understand how it became established that this is a known entity? And the professor should know the answer and in fact apologize and say, you know what? I should have given you that. You shouldn't have had to ask you, ask me that question. But since you have, let's walk through that. Yeah. And I think a lot of our faculty would have, you know, in our field would have really rich answers to some of those questions. And they kind of have in some ways maybe forgotten to provide it. So let's talk about that. What do you think are the things that are saved for grad school? So what are the things that grad school, in your opinion, are definitely responsible that they can't put on any uh, anybody else's shoulders in terms of helping to keep the evidence gap as minimal as possible? Any ideas? I actually think one of the biggest things is how graduate students end up feeling about research when they graduate. So that's kind of like a core thing is like, you know, when when they put on that cap and gown and leave, if someone were to ask them and if they were to give an honest question, and if you said, do you think you're going to end up looking to the research or reading journal articles? Like, do you think that the research is going to be influential in your clinical practice, you know, whether or not they say yes or no, and how important they rate our field science in their daily life as clinicians, and whether or not they find our field's data to be interesting, useful, and enjoyable, or nitpicky, annoying, and boring. You know what I mean? And so I think that that actually is one of the like core things that has to happen is a little bit of an audit in terms of like, how are you developing these future clinicians relationship with our fields, science and research, because how they just feel about it, whether or not they look at it and they're like, I like that stuff, it's valuable, or whether or not they look at it and they're like, hell no, I'm not touching that again, is going to make a huge difference. (laughs) So I really like that you said that because a lot of institutions would not openly and honestly say, yeah, we don't teach them anything about evidence. We don't, your syllabi have ASHA terminology in them that you have to put in there to be accredited. Mm-hmm. And they don't mm-hmm. say evidence is is up to you. 
right? There's mm-hmm. an assumption that it's based in research. But then uh, you, what you said made me think that we think we teach clinical skills, right? We teach bedside matter and we teach, you know, how to counsel and interact with a caregiver. These are things that we think are skills that we expect students don't come in with. And we have our question, will they be a good clinician, right? Mm-hmm. But what we don't think is that reading and understanding and appreciating literature is in fact a skill that needs to be taught. Where else would they yeah. learn it? I mean, I learned how to read papers by reading papers in my PhD, because at that point Same. it was imperative that I figure it out. And it only came with practice, just like the first client that you approach, unless you just have it, it's probably not going to be your first, your best ever clinical interaction. And you might look back and go, oh my God, I think about the things that I said to clients or the way I felt with a client when I first saw them. And later on, I just feel so comfortable walking into a client space or a patient space. The same thing with a paper. And so this idea of how you feel translates to what we say about them in the clinical realm, which is how do you feel about your clinical skills? And we hope they say, I feel strongly over the last two years that I've been here. Well, that question, how do you feel about your research skills? We don't ask it and we don't real, and we definitely no, we didn't actually directly teach them research skills. What we have yeah. is a research methods class, but actually you don't just have one clinical practicum class and go, well, you had your clinical practicum class that one semester of it, just apply it to the rest of your life. Right. In fact, what we right. should do is not have a research methods class. We should incorporate that into every class because there's literally no class where there's no research that could be used to back up what you're doing. And if there is, maybe we should question that. Exactly, exactly. And the research needs to be integrated into clinical problem solving all along the way. I think one of the most dangerous things is when I see like a single research methods class assigned to the one faculty member who's never worked as a clinician because they're like, oh, this person's a rock star scientist. They're going to be able to teach research methods in their sleep. And they can. But what they often can't teach is how clinicians use research, which are totally different things. Like there's a big difference between the way you would teach someone research methods if it was like semester one of a PhD program, right? versus the way you would teach it if you know this person is about to go work in a hospital or a school. And that's why having one person be responsible for all things research methods, when we say evidence-based is everything we care about, is Mm -hmm. akin to having one person do the clinical practicum class because they were a clinician at some point in their life and say, that's all you ever needed, right? So having that same, and each program probably needs to decide what are maybe the five to 10 core things that we want every student to be able to have so we can know we have to implement all of those things into our class in our own way. So they need redundancy, but the variability in the way it's presented. And that to me Mm -hmm. is the best way to translate those concepts. 100%. Another thing that I see that bothers me too is disconnect between research faculty and clinical faculty. Because what that models is we don't work together, nor do we need to. You know what I mean? And I really think that like if you've got, you know, faculty where some people are, you know, cranking out studies, you know, via their big grants and everything. And then you've got faculty who are responsible for, you know, like running the university clinic and stuff. One of the most meaningful things you could do is model working together, model working together and valuing each other's expertise and showing why that scientist has value in the clinic and showing why that clinician has value in the class that the scientist is teaching or value in the lab when they're, you know, like planning and looking at their studies and things like that. 
because, you know, an, another thing that's often discussed in our field that I think is a big issue is the disconnect between our field's clinicians and scientists and that we need to have better relationships with one another. And a lot of times when I say stuff like that, people will be like, no, 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 there's not clinicians and scientists. Like, we're all one big field. We're all one big happy family. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly the way we want it to be. But we also need to discuss ways in which it's not that way so that we can identify some of the things that are causing clinicians to say things when they go to like conferences like, oh, I don't need to go to any of the scientist talks because they won't tell me anything about clinical practice. You know what I mean? Like that's what allows all that type of stuff to continue to perpetuate. I would say that I hear a lot of range in terms of how the clinical faculty and the research faculty believe that they're valued. In my experience, mm -hmm. often the clinical faculty believe that they're valued to a lesser degree than the research faculty. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, even though the students are getting a clinical degree, they still feel that they're beholden to the research faculty. And mm -hmm. I, I think that has to do far with bigger things beyond CSD, like, you know, who's bringing yeah. the research money? We don't have to get into that. Yep. You make a really great point, which is people want to believe that they're one big happy family. But really, if you ask them that same, how did you feel? questionnaire that the students mm -hmm. are getting, they'd say on the down low, like I low-key totally don't really believe that I'm valued here as a clinician faculty yeah. member. And so when we talk about theory and practice, which theory would be more on the research faculty end and practice is on the clinician end, I understand what you're saying, but I think that there isn't a total Pollyanna sort of approach to what we want because we are, we want totally different things than the clinicians do ultimately. For instance, yeah. Scientists, we have fixed study protocols. So we go to these clinicians to say, let's do a study together. And they're like, okay, I'm going to provide individualized patient care. And I was like, woohoo, clinician. We're like, no, 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 you got to follow this protocol. So we have different goals there. They expect variability. We hate variability. If every patient yeah. came with exactly the same demographic and problem, they'd be like, am I in the twilight zone? Why are all my patients, mm -hmm. you know, white males at 45 with a lisp? What the hell? Right? Yeah. But we How want to get so easy. <laughs> exactly. But meanwhile, in our research, we're like, yeah, we only want that particular demographic. And we value group data. They value individual data. So if a patient mm -hmm. is getting better and they don't know, necessarily know why, that's a point in their box. Whereas if we yeah. have this outlier of a person who's getting better and everybody's not, or everyone's saying the same, we're like, what the hell's going on here? You're an outlier. Yeah. You're not, it's, that's not a right. good thing, right? right? So we have to have these conversations where we say, where are we on the same page? And where are we different? And the students need to hear this conversation so they can yes. understand that it's okay that you're incentivized differently in different settings. And mm. you have to understand how and when to put on different caps. And sometimes you have on two caps. The point is to know there isn't just one answer for this complicated problem that we're all trying to grapple through. Yeah, 100%. And making sure that everybody's in the conversations at the table, being valued, being heard, all of it. Another thing that's, you know, kind of analogous to what we already said, but I think needs to be said is that if we want our field's clinicians to see value in our research, we need to make sure that we're looking toward the research for the purpose of solving clinical problems during graduate school, rather than only looking to the research for the purpose of doing things like writing a thesis paper. That's another thing that I've seen among clinicians is that like, they're like, okay, I've read journal articles 
in, um, you know, grad school, but I read them for this point of like doing background research so I could insert citations and write this paper. They have never like actually practiced the art of like information seeking in order to develop their clinical practice or to like do clinical problem solving. And so I think just the whole concept of, you know, <laughs> which actually gets to another, a totally different question too, which maybe we do and maybe we don't want to go down this path, but are we training our graduate students for a specific job? Like, is it a professional degree or are we training them for like a liberal arts sort of like holistic education where we want them to be able to, you know, we want them to make sure they're practicing writing papers, a whole bunch of stuff, too. You know what I mean? Because I think there's a little bit of confusion and disconnect with that. But it, it goes back to the point of the clinicians need to see how the evidence is used for clinical problem solving, not just how the evidence is used to write papers. And I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to go down a more difficult path. It's very rocky okay. and thorny where I'm going. There are both fires okay. and floods down this path. What do, <laughs> we do, I know. what do we do about clinical faculty who don't know the answers themselves? Yeah, that's so, another. Yeah, so that's a here is where I'm going to jump out and be Ianessa on 10. It is the least enjoyable part of being around me, I will tell you this. Most people like me on 5.73. So Ines on 10 would say, as many places as I've been, oftentimes you walk in and they see you as this person, this ivory tower guru, who they dare not expose their knowledge to for fear of being exposed as somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, Mm -hmm. or at least doesn't know as much as they should know. So you're either blocked from interacting Mm -hmm. or you are appeased, maybe led along like, yeah, we'll have to do these things, but it's just so busy here. And sometimes it is just so busy here. I do have some colleagues who I've had those difficult conversations with where, uh, for instance, at Hopkins, some colleagues that I was treating with, you know, side by side, just as a clinician, not as a researcher. And that was just the part of my day where I only saw patients. And, uh, you know, a statement would be made and I'd be like, huh, you think the larynx does what during a swallow? Now, I can't help myself. I can't just let them think that the larynx does something it just doesn't do. And that mm-hmm. conversation is very like, dun, dun, dun. Inessa Humbert is asking me about the larynx on this patient who might <laughs> yeah. die if I don't get it right. You know what I mean? Okay. And so mm-hmm. I can't help myself. And so sometimes those conversations turn into amazing. I've published with clinicians who I've had those conversations with because they've said, how can I learn more about these basic concepts that in your world are basic? But frankly, I just never learned it. I've been on the job for 20 years and I've just never had a dysphagia class. And Mm -hmm. we've learned together. They've come to my lab. We've trained together. And now they actually know a ton, collect data, analyze it at the level of the people in my lab. And then for every one of those people, there's somebody who basically shuns you because they just don't think that either what you have to say is important or they don't want to be shown up as somebody who doesn't know. I would suspect that in most programs, you have a decent range of those. And the question is, do we keep the peace? Because I have, these are faculty members who I'll be doing social things with, who we have to make, we have to vote on things together with. How much does it matter that they don't understand how a system works or what the literature says, if it's going to blow up the whole faculty? Do you know what I'm saying? Like there are, there are those issues where you're human beings together. You're like, I just don't feel like being the bad guy. Just fine. They don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's, 
like one of the like realistic barriers of, you know, research faculty who are like, okay, I want to make this better. Like that's a perfect example of a barrier of it. But like, and, and so it's not just like, you know, faculty at the university, like clinical faculty, for example, but also um, clinical supervisors, which is even harder. That is like basically cussing out your nanny and you had no other backup. <laughs> right, exactly. So if people who are listening don't know this because you haven't, you know, been at a university or, you know, been a um, clinical supervisor, it is really difficult for universities to get SLPs who are willing and available to take their graduate students. It's really hard. And there's usually one or two people at a university who it's their job to foster and maintain those relationships with basically the network of however many SLPs they have in the hopper who are willing to say yes, pushing on them in any way to, you know, like level up certain clinical and research skills would be even trickier than doing it with colleagues who you're with. And the reason it's difficult is because most CSD programs have a very bad business model, which is everyone's incentivized to participate at the top of their game, except for the clinical faculty, which is the exact bottleneck for why we don't have that many students. So the Mm -hmm. students are incentivized because they get a degree. Professors are incentivized as our staff because they get a salary. Clinical supervisors who are externs, maybe they get a little bit of money here and there. Maybe they get their ASHA dues paid. Maybe they get to go to a conference. But ultimately, it's more volunteer work on their part. So we're not exactly going to hold them to this ridiculously high standard. Well, we're just happy to have them. Just make sure my kid doesn't die while I'm out with my husband for dinner. Just please keep (laughs) him alive. Right. Or like, don't make our graduate students cry too many times and don't tell them anything too crazy. Otherwise, it's fine. <laughs> but but I do think to a certain extent, focusing on a little bit on the newest people in our field kind of can help shift some of that a little bit over time, right? Because like all the clinical supervisors are former graduate students. So, yeah. Which is another factor, which is there's a bit of incestuous activity there, which is you have this, you know, fr- this goodwill toward a program you were in. And that's mm-hmm. not always the best reason to come in and say things. The professors who are your professors are still those professors. And you might question whether or not you can say, you know, I actually had a kind of a shitty experience and this would have made it better for me. And, you know, it's kind of hard yeah. to speak up in all of these circumstances. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The relationship between um, SLPs and their former professors is is funny. I mean... You know, you'll you'll have SLPs who are, you know, 50 years old, excellent careers, highly competent, really skilled. But then you get them in front of that, you know, professor who they were maybe a little intimidated by when they were a graduate student or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) And they're like, "Eh, but I can't, you know, I can't engage in a debate with this person because they're, you know, they know everything. Like, yeah. I keep telling them my name is Ianessa. Like, I just can't, Dr. Humbert. I'm like, well, I'm not going to answer to you anymore. (laughs) If you don't call me Anessa. But but yeah, I think we're touching on some really important parts. I, I suspect that there are a bunch of people either driving, screaming, yes, yes, and then, and in my school, and blah, 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 and hopefully mm-hmm. tagging their colleagues and going, we were just talking about this. Mm-hmm. Our goal here is really to sort of scratch up some dust because it's important yeah. that we don't all just have these experiences and go home. We We kind of need to get together and say, other people are talking about this, and it's okay to talk about this, even though there's a bit of conflict associated with it. Yeah, for sure. And there's, and you know, the people who are most comfortable, I think, can be 
called upon first to set that model for everybody else. That discussing these things is important and matters and it's going to be awkward and it can get messy, but good things can come from it. So can I make a suggestion that is on the solution end, perhaps a bit more radical? Do we need a curriculum overhaul? Oh, uh, and so I, uh, let me give you <laughs> your response alone is like, I, I dare not speak. I'm like thinking of everybody I know on like, <laughs> okay. okay, here's my thought. There are systems that no matter if you're in hearing or cognition or language or swallowing or voice or motor speech, there are consistent themes that we all need to understand, right? Mm -hmm. So there is basic concepts like neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neuroplasticity. There are concepts related to motor learning. There are so many concepts that people can habituation. There are all kinds of things that most of these systems draw from. Development, Mm -hmm. some basic development concepts, aging, right? What it Mm -hmm. means to have an injury, how the system responds. Those to me are the overarching concepts that are more important than having a class where if you're in voice, you talk about the larynx for voice. If you're in speech, you talk about the larynx for speech. If you're in swallowing, you talk about the larynx for swallowing. It's the same goddamn larynx. Mm -hmm. And I just swallowed, I phonated, and I articulated in the last hour so many times. And my brain wasn't like, yep, that was for the voice class. And this was for the motor speech class. And that was for the swallowing class. (laughs) So the problem is we think that these systems are so separate that we have so many faculty members making so many things complicated. We need a voice person. We need a this person. As opposed to saying, we need people who specialize in the way a system works across these functions because our bodies our brain processes, you know, pronunciation of a sound differently than closing off or a swallow, but it's the same mm-hmm. damn brain, the same damn larynx. And what we yes. do is we compartmentalize these systems as if they really are separate and we could be combining forces to help people understand because one patient will have a tongue that works perfectly for articulation and horribly for a swallow. And you mm-hmm. need to be able to parse that out on your own. You can't say, well, I never had a real good motor speech class, so I don't understand why it's doing this here and not there. You have to understand (laughs) the whole system, but we don't teach it that way, even though the patient presents as one person with a larynx or a tongue or whatever that's been functioning across these functions, right? And so to Mm -hmm. me, a curriculum overhaul is not that CAA needs to do anything. It's that our curriculum needs to allow for the to decide what concepts go across all these systems. So we are constantly preaching the gospel in that area, but we're just tweaking it for this task, tweaking it for that task, tweaking it for this population. Oh, it's an infant. It's not, you know, an 80 year old. We're going from pediatric to geriatric. Here are the considerations, but still the basic structure functions this way, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's Mm -hmm. a way to consolidate our efforts to have faculty members who can cross train right? uh, There's no reason I shouldn't be able to teach the motor speech class and the voice class and the swallowing class equally well. But I was really trained to understand just one thing and not so much the other, right? Mm -hmm. But that to me is the issue with the overhaul. That could extend, then then the clinical faculty would already think across the the domains that way. It wouldn't be, well, I only do this, I only do that. Now, I understand hearing and, you know, our tick aren't exactly the same thing. And certainly there are areas where AUD and SLP do, in fact, truly separate more, but not necessarily on speech perception, then they are way more together than I am with them, with either of them. Swallowing suddenly has nothing to do (laughs) with these things, right? (laughs) 
So right. my point is, there's a network of things that we need to figure out where we have common ground and what are the general theories that we need to understand well and train well and just realize that this function is just a subset of the things that this system does. It's sort of like you have a car. You don't just teach backing up and parallel parking at, you know, mm-hmm. totally different section. You might in one trip have to drive fast, have to screech to a halt. You might have to back up and parallel park in the one trip. You can't separate those things. It's driving. I agree with that entirely. And that would be something that an individual department would just have to prioritize making happen. The only, the biggest barrier I've ever heard to this when I've suggested is, but I already done made my slides, you see. Right, right. My PowerPoints are done. My PowerPoints are done. done. And sometimes I'm like, are those PowerPoints or are those PowerPointlesses? I mean, is that PowerPointless? Because really, we keep having this conversation. And I've been in this field for a couple decades now. It's the same conversation. So obviously, Mm -hmm. we need some kind of an overhaul or a new view. Yeah, 100%. As comfortable as a lot of us have gotten with, you know, teaching online and having more like flexible classes and stuff, like there's no reason that that problem solving needs to happen in isolation (laughs) over and over and over and over again. Like you would think that some amount of collaboration, even across departments, could make it really doable and actually end up making it lower labor for the faculty. Because the more you work together with people, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to share teaching responsibilities. So, I mean, I mean, do you think the math department's like, yeah, we kind of don't really have addition in any. I mean, are you kidding me? It's just like, when does <laughs> when do the basics go away? No, calculus doesn't right. just not have certain parts. Right. It just builds on it a foundation. And the foundation right. is what we got in kindergarten. Yeah. Our division person retired. We need another division person. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree with that entirely. So what would you say should sum up this brain vomit that we just kind of, I like our brain vomit. So what would you say is a pretty decent summary of the point we're trying to make to answer this question, this evidence gap thing? What do you think? Yeah, I think that the core take home is that we need to be having conversations around why this continues decade after decade after decade. And it's the same problem over and over again. And there's going to have to be people who step into, you know, positions of leadership to start to really push these conversations forward toward action and not be, you know, hesitant to look critically within our own field and identify ways in which we can improve. I would also say there's something key that you suggested and you kind of echoed through this, which is the students need to be evaluated and surveyed. And those students are going to become us in one way, shape, uh-huh. or form. They're going to be a clinician. They're going to be a clinical supervisor. They're going to become clinical staff. They're going to become a researcher. They're going to become administrators at ASHA. They're going to mm-hmm. be something. And we once were students. And we were, yeah. our opinions maybe were not quite as, um, it's not that they weren't valued. They just weren't uh, taken into account in a, in a formal way. So people could use that as a stimulus to determine whether or not things should change. And then those same students are now us saying, not considering what the students are saying. We somehow think that we've transitioned from parent, from child to parent, and they're not the same. But in fact, Mm -hmm. you used to be somebody's child and you never forget that. So um, I think that that's probably an important perspective. And I'm sure I've forgotten about all the things I used to think as a student because of where I am now. And I'd love to hear more about what they think. Yeah, 100%. I remember a lot of it. (laughs) I have some very vivid memories of being a student, but yeah, I'm sure I've forgotten a lot about it too. But 
Well, this was really good. I'm glad we got through this topic. Hopefully there'll be a lot of conversations coming out after this. The topic of episode three is pseudoscience and misinformation. Join us then.